Hi everyone, this is Jeannie Poole. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. Welcome to the HRO2 August 2022 podcast. This issue is packed with 13 original full-length articles, two research letters, an editorial comment, a perspectives and contrast pair focusing on left atrial appendage closure devices, a fellow's corner interesting case report on bundle branch reentry VT, and a letter to the editor with response. Given the number of original articles, I will summarize just five of these that are all focused on pacing. The first article in this category is authored by Dr. Zhang and colleagues from Ningo, China, and is entitled Evaluation of the Shortening of the Stimulus to Peak Left Ventricular Activation Time at Continuous Low Output to Confirm Left Bundle Branch Capture. In this small study, the authors explore a method to achieve selective left bundle branch area pacing. This is a retrospective analysis of 28 patients, all of whom had a standard pacing indication and underwent left bundle branch area pacing. The average age of the patients was 73, 50% were female, and the majority did not have other cardiovascular comorbidities. The left ventricular ejection fraction on the average was 67%, and the indication for pacing was sinus node dysfunction in 29% and AV node dysfunction in 60%. A few of the patients had both sinus node and AV node dysfunction. The baseline QRS morphology was normal in 57%, and the remaining had a right bundle branch block in 35.7% and a left bundle branch block in only 4%. The novel method that these authors use was to use continuous unipolar pacing at low output of 2 volts at 0.5 milliseconds. They did this during the entire procedure of lead placement. What they identified was that when the left bundle was successfully captured, they observed an abrupt change in the stimulus to the R-wave peak activation time in lead 5. This difference was about 15 milliseconds. This then represented left bundle branch capture and not septal capture. Using higher outputs was not discriminatory as the lead tip could be adjacent but not actually engaging the left bundle branch and yet high pacing would activate the left bundle branch. The authors suggest that this is a useful and simple method to accurately identify selective capture of the left bundle branch. The next study is also focused on left bundle branch area pacing. The title of this paper is Left Bundle Branch Area Pacing in Patients with Heart Failure and Right Bundle Branch Block Results from the International Left Bundle Branch Area Pacing Collaborative Study Group. The authors are Dr. Vijay Araman and colleagues. The subject of this paper focuses on patients with a right bundle branch block who have heart failure. Patients with right bundle branch block have not been observed to be responders to typical cardiac resynchronization using a coronary sinus branch to target a left ventricular lead. This study was performed at 11 centers, including five in the United States, two in Spain, one in India, one in Hong Kong, one in the UK, and one in Poland. In patients referred for cardiac resynchronization or standard bradycardia pacing indications of the left ventricular ejection fraction less than 50%, left bundle branch area pacing was attempted in 121 patients, some after his bundle pacing or coronary sinus branch pacing was not successful. Outcomes of procedural success and ECG parameters as well as clinical outcomes including heart failure, hospitalization, and improvement in New York Heart Association heart failure class were assessed. Placement of the lead was guided by a number of parameters, including one, 
Recording of Purkinje potentials from the left bundle branch area pacing lead. And two, measurement of the stimulus potential to QRS onset intervals. Pacing thresholds were assessed for both selective and non-selective left bundle branch capture. Additional parameters documented included QRS width during anodal capture, QRS axis, and elimination or attenuation of the right bundle branch pattern. The baseline QRS axis was leftward in 63% of the patients. The patients had a mean age of 74 years. 25% were women. 49% had an ischemic cardiomyopathy. And the mean ejection fraction was 35%. Of the 121 patients in whom left bundle branch area pacing was attempted, it was successful in 107 or 88%. The implant left bundle branch area pacing threshold was excellent at 0.8 volts at 0.5 milliseconds, and the R waves measured 10 millivolts at implant. These parameters were stable over the following year. The QRS duration narrowed by about 6 milliseconds with left bundle branch area pacing. The R wave stim to peak time, as measured in V6, was 85 milliseconds. In one year of follow-up, the left ventricular ejection fraction improved from 35 to 43% with a significant p-value of 0.01, and 60% of the patients were noted to have a clinically improved response. In multivariate analysis, female sex and QRS narrowing were predictive of response. The authors conclude that left bundle branch area pacing is feasible in most patients with a baseline right bundle branch block, and that in their experience, both clinical and echocardiographic outcomes were improved. The next paper is also authored by Dr. Vijay Ehrman and colleagues and is titled Conduction System Pacing versus Conventional Pacing in Patients Undergoing Atrial Ventricular Node Ablation, a non-randomized on-treatment comparison. The focus of this paper is a retrospective analysis comparing conventional RV pacing versus conduction system pacing in patients undergoing AV node ablation in the setting of atrial fibrillation. The study was conducted between 2015 and 2020 at the Geisinger Health System. Conventional pacing, which could have been RV only or biventricular pacing, or conduction system pacing was conducted at the operator's discretion. Procedural and clinical outcomes were assessed. The study included a total of 223 patients, of whom conduction system pacing was performed in 110 of these, and conventional pacing in 113 patients. The mean age of the patients was 75 years. 48% were women, 60% had persistent atrial fibrillation, and the baseline QRS was normal in 56%, left bundle branch block in 22%, and the remaining were right bundle branch block or IVCD. The mean left ventricular ejection fraction was 43%. While the conduction system pacing procedures were longer, fluoroscopy time was the same. Of those who received conduction system pacing, 76 were his bundle pacing and the remainder were left bundle branch area pacing. Amongst the conventional pacing group, IV pacing using an LV lead in the coronary sinus accounted for 63% of those patients. The majority of the patients had the AV node ablation and the pacemaker performed in the same procedure. The primary observation was that after a mean of 27 months, the left ventricular ejection fraction had improved by 5.4% in the CSP patients compared to 
percentage points and those who had conventional pacing. Furthermore, for the combined endpoint of death from any cause plus heart failure hospitalization, 48% of the CSP versus 62% of the conventional pacing patients experienced the endpoint with a hazard ratio of 0.61, 95% confidence intervals 0.42 to 0.89, with a p-value less than 0.01. The outcome did not vary according to his bundle pacing or left bundle left bundle branch area pacing, or between RV pacing and BIV pacing in the conventional group. The primary take-home message from this study is that conduction system pacing was performed safely, and acknowledging the limitations of a retrospective analysis, outcomes were favored in those who underwent conduction system pacing. As the readers know, there are a number of large randomized trials ongoing or starting soon that will assess conduction system pacing, and that data will be greatly anticipated. Leaving conduction system pacing now, but not the topic of cardiac resynchronization, the next paper is titled, Targeting the Latest Site of Left Ventricular Mechanical Activation is Associated with Improved Long-Term Outcomes for Recipients of Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy. This study was led by Dr. Rasmus Borquist and colleagues. This study addresses a well-described concept that CRT can be maximized when targeting the site of latest mechanical activation of the left ventricle. The authors perform a patient-level analysis of two prior studies using image-guided approaches. The two studies included the STARTER trial and the CRT clinic trial, both of which compared image-guided lead placement to a control group considered to be standard of care and at the physician discretion. All patients met guideline indications for a CRT pacemaker or CRT defibrillator. The imaging used was the GE Echopack, which provided an analysis of speckle tracking-based strain. For the patients randomized to the image-guided LV lead placement, the operators were provided the results of the echo assessment of area of late activation prior to performing the procedure. If the lead was placed in this area, it was identified as being concordant. If not, it was considered either adjacent or remote. A total of 289 patients were included in the analysis and were followed for a median of 6.3 years. Most patients were male, 73%, and with New York Heart Association Class 3 heart failure, 66%. Most patients, 71%, had a baseline left bundle branch block. Clinical characteristics were not significantly different between the two groups. The area of latest activation was most often posterolateral and included both basal and apical segments. The authors found that the left ventricular ejection fraction improved by 8% in both groups. 9% in the image-guided group versus 7% in the conventional group, a finding that was not significant. Symptoms improved to a greater degree in the image-guided group, but the difference was small and not significant. The cause of death was only known in 58 of the 149 deaths, but cardiac death was significantly less in the image-guided group, 47% versus 82% with a significant p-value of 0.007, amongst the 58 known deaths. Other significant findings included less heart failure hospitalization in the interventional group. Predictors of favorable outcomes were QRS duration and ischemic etiology, whereas QRS morphology was not. In an adjusted, multivariate analysis, image-guided LV lead placement was not an independent predictor of outcome. The authors conclude that image-guided left ventricular placement can help increase the opportunity to place the lead in the area of latest activation and may be associated with better survival free of heart failure hospitalization. 
However, when adjusting for clinical factors, image-guided LV placement was not an independent predictor of outcome. The final paper in this group of pacing studies addresses an increasingly common indication for pacemaker placement, that is, patients who undergo transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Here, Dr. Aman Ramilla and colleagues have a paper titled, Predicting Permanent Pacemaker Implantation Following Transcatheter Aortic Valve Replacement, a Contemporary Meta-Analysis of 981,168 Patients. The purpose of this paper was to identify a contemporary analysis of the clinical features predictive of needing a pacemaker post-TAVAR. This is a meta-analysis examining published studies between 2015 and 2020. Specific data extracted included study design, country of origin, recruitment period, number of participants, number of permanent pacemaker implantations after TAVAR, age, gender, and length of follow-up. A total of 239 studies were included with nearly 1 million patients enrolled, of whom 17.4% of the patients received a permanent pacemaker. The mean age range of the patients was 53 to 93 years. 53% were female. The follow-up varied between 1 month to 5 years. The pre-TAVR risk was evaluated using the Logistic European System for Cardiac Operative Risk Evaluation, or Euroscore, or the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Predicted Risk of Mortality, STS-PROM score, for 87% of the studies. The same baseline variables were not reported similarly for all studies. The authors found an increased risk of needing a permanent pacemaker in men over women with a risk ratio of 1.16, with age 80 or over with a risk ratio of 1.07, or BMI of 25 or more, with risk ratio of 1.08. Other comorbidities associated with higher risk included diabetes and chronic kidney disease. ECG variables predictive of increased risk were first-degree AV block, right bundle branch block, bifascicular block, left anterior fascicular block, and a wider QRS duration. The type of valve, specifically the Medtronic core valve, was associated with a 2.4-fold higher risk compared with the Edward Sapien or the Medtronic Evolute R-valve. The risk was also lower with the Boston Scientific Lotus valve. Transfemoral versus transapical access was also associated with greater risk. Other significant factors were valve implantation depth, left ventricular outflow tract area, and aortic valve annulus diameter. Using these findings, the authors derived a risk prediction score based upon the odds ratios of risk. Strong risk factors were right bundle branch block and bifascicular block. Intermediate risk factors were first-degree AV block and chronic kidney disease. Weak risk factors included male sex, age 80 years or greater, BMI 25 or greater, the presence of diabetes or atrial fibrillation, and a left anterior fascicular block. Patients were then stratified into high or low risk groups. The high risk groups included those with one strong risk factor or two intermediate risk factors. Additionally, a high risk group could include a patient with one intermediate risk factor but with increased left ventricular outflow tract diameter or aortic annulus diameter. Another category in this high risk group would be patients with two weak factors with increased LVOT 
or aortic annulus diameter. Finally, patients with three or more weak risk factors were considered to be high-risk patients. The authors conclude that high-risk features can be identified, and these were used to construct a risk score. These are nicely shown in an algorithmic figure in their paper. This completes my summary of five papers focused on pacing found in this August 2022 HRO2 issue. There are a number of other great papers in this issue, and I encourage you to read them. While signing off for now, I look forward to bringing you our next podcast in October 2022.